Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello everyone, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. Uh, Today it's just me, I'm going to do a solo podcast, or I'm going to try at least. And uh, just going to answer some questions. So I put up a question box thing on my Instagram yesterday. And uh, I have a few, some, uh, well, lots I'm not going to answer because they're just kind of, they're too specific to this one person's injury or issue or whatever. But then I have some broader ones that I think everyone can benefit benefit from, hopefully. And I'll try and answer those. And um, yeah, we'll see how we go. Some of them I haven't even really looked at, but it just looks like a decent question. So I'll try and figure out my thought process as I answer the question. Um Update life-wise, I'm getting married uh, in about 10 days. So this will be out. Actually, when you're listening to this, if you're listening to this on the day it's out, I'll be getting married uh, a week from that day. So um, Thursday Thursday week, it's now Tuesday. So so 10 days from now, I'll be getting married. Um, everything is pretty much sorted, I think. We think. Um, Kira has sorted a lot of things. And um, now I'm just trying to get all this all my work stuff done before then so I can take like a good week off where I don't really think about it or anything like that so that kind of involves doing this podcast um having another podcast in the books already for next week um what else like making sure our member site has videos and stuff ready for that um I think Jake Tour is going to do a, a guest presentation actually so Jake did a podcast with us a while back and it's one of our most popular episode so he's going to do a uh, a members a guest presentation on teller tendinopathy for us uh so i think that's my video for one of my videos for the member site for next week and um yeah so this podcast what else do i need to do maybe maybe try and plan a few instagram posts which i never actually do but uh yeah i probably need to do that which is hard because i just kind of sit down every day for half an hour and try and Whatever I was thinking about that day, I just post. So I'm going to have to try and plan out a few, I think, because uh, I don't want to have to think about anything at all. And um, anything else I need to plan? Uh, no, that's that's probably about it. So, um, so yeah, that's the plan there. Organize the, the workshop in Florida. I'm going to go over to Jeffrey Wolf, the Flexi Bull, who also was on our podcast, who is the most popular podcast so far, actually. So uh, you should go back and listen to Jake and Jeff, but um, I'm going to do the the lower limb biomechanics rehabilitation and performance workshop in jeff's gym which is in florida i think it's in like Clearwater or something like that it's not far from tampa um i know just when i look at florida the size of florida it's massive like i was like okay we'll go to miami we'll go to orlando we'll go to jeff's place which is close to Clearwater, i think uh looking at my map now they're also far away from Europe. But um, yeah, that's where we're going to go first weekend in September. So we'll, we'll be releasing the tickets. I'm not sure when, hopefully soon enough. I'll try and get all the stuff organized for that, the landing page and the website and everything. But um, we'll be releasing the tickets to our, to I think my my email list and Jeff's email list first. And Jeff said to me yesterday, I bet you the, the, the tickets will sell out just on our email list. So make sure you're on my email list. And um, and yeah, if you want, if you actually want to get a ticket there and Jeff has a great spot. He's like five minutes from the beach, he said. And uh we're going to like it's like it's almost like a destination type of spot. So even if you're not in Florida, if you're a few hours away or whatever and you want to come hang out, learn a ton of stuff, uh that would be that would be good. So make sure you're on 
on the email list for that. And uh, yeah, okay. So some questions. First one, Rob was straight in. Um, Rob is one of our is one of our members. I think Rob's in Limerick, isn't he? He rehabs powerlifters. Rob Maloney. So Rob was straight in with the first question as soon as I put it up. Do you see any advantages to, in using flywheel training in the rehab process? Um, good question, Rob. It depends on obviously what you're rehabbing. I I know you work with a lot of powerlifters and I think maybe yes for them. Um, so yes for them. Uh, yes for maybe like rugby players, like front rowers, stuff like that. Anyone who doesn't have to maybe change direction particularly quickly, they just have to resist and push against high force. Then that's someone that I think is, it could be valuable for those people um there's a few parts to this so i actually tried to buy a flywheel i think it was a k-box i tried to buy it in the black friday sale last year and i thought i had bought it and whatever reason i think my bank declined the transfer because our bank is a mess no matter the 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 bank stuff in ireland aib bank are terrible terrible i can't do transfers i can't buy anything it's a disaster and then you look at revolut you can like send money to anyone anywhere in the world and they get it in 10 seconds and then i can't do even with a card reader and everything i can't do a transfer so that's a that's a story for another day but um i tried to buy one and it wasn't really as much for like people's rehab it was more for me to play around with it start to see how this felt and Figure, figure it out and play around with different things and uh yeah so i didn't get it in the end because it didn't it didn't come um and whether 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 it's useful there's a few parts to this part one is the practicality of it so i if you if you if you look at the rehab stuff that i give to people i would say 80 percent of it i would say 100 percent of it can be done at home up until a certain point in the rehab process. So we have ways to absolutely stress the life out of people and make them way stronger without them needing to step into a gym. So I try to have as little barriers as possible. So our some of our squat variations, some of our hamstring variations, um, upper limb is obviously is obviously quite easy as well. Um, some hopping variations, like extensive, uh, the yielding type of stuff, you can make people very strong and very explosive and you can bridge a lot of gaps in the rehab process without ever needing to step into a gym. Now, obviously someone like, let's say, Dinny's ACL rehab, he needs to go to a gym, even though in the beginning, like he didn't need, he didn't need to. There's some things he, he would benefit from in the gym, but we could get him. I, I actually, to be honest, I reckon I could do full ACL rehab. Uh, without ever getting someone in the gym it wouldn't be as good as it as it should be obviously but I still reckon I could do it you just need to be a little bit creative but uh, but it it can be done so I, I try to have as little barriers to getting people to do their exercises as possible and if you think about a k box like unless you're a massive facility like Arsenal Football Club Man United Football Club whatever who, who have the ability to buy 30k boxes 50k boxes or whatever then you have maybe one k box or one flywheel type of type of lower body one one upper body one in your gym that means that if you're coming that part that one person like if you're working with them one-on-one that's fine but they have to come to the gym every time if they want to use it so that's an issue that's the biggest issue practical wise that's the biggest issue secondly there's a lot of claims and stuff being made about the flywheel training and, and things like that I think 
first off, if we think about the benefits of it, it's just making people stronger. And I think a lot of people that use it could just do a good old fashioned like lifting and getting stronger, right? They didn't need to use the flywheel to get stronger. They didn't use to need to use this big eccentric whatever to get stronger. They just needed to get stronger and they just used the flywheel to do that, to help them do that, which is which is cool. But it 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 it's not saying that flywheel is better than anything else. It's just this is what they used. And they probably probably could have used just good old fashioned strength training uh to to get stronger. Okay. So that that's that's one thing. The practicality of it is the second thing. Um, it, it does become a big issue. I know from, for my clients, like how many clients would I be able to actually use that with? And like, I would much rather them have, have access and consistency rather than once a week, they come into me and they do a few flywheel things and they feel good, but then they can't do it a second day or a third day. So that, that's an issue. Then the other thing is, I think with eccentric training, fast eccentrics is where it's at. So if you listen to the episode that I did with, um Daniel back from ju- from jump science yeah sorry from jump science Daniel was talking about fast eccentrics and how that's like how that is the key really in, in, with with regards to um eccentric training and with regards to building athleticism is being able to change direction faster so being able to move from eccentric to concentric in as short a time as possible that's where the the magic happens right if you have any athletes that need to be able to change direction jump sprint all of that stuff it's all the same thing it's moving from eccentric to concentric faster um and that is that's where the magic happens the flywheel doesn't actually train that it kind of trains the opposite of that to, to, to be honest it, it does train the opposite of that so so I think that's an issue. I think that could have like negative transfer for a lot of people actually could could have. I'm not saying it does, but could have negative transfer for a lot of people. And actually, if I was going to if I was going to try and train that where I want them to learn to change direction faster than like my or my or your sorry, not my your like your fast eccentrics, your jumping exercises, um your your sprinting all of that stuff is what you need so like daniel was talking about i can't remember what he was talking about but just for example like nordics nordics where you stop at the end or, or just um where you fall and stop at the end that maybe that's not a great example but um but an rdl where you like almost drop into it thing, things like that that is much more valuable i would say than flight wheel training way 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 more valuable so dropping in and catching or dropping in and pushing out as fast as you can that stuff i think is way more valuable than flight wheel training it's way more practical than flight wheel training because you can play you can train that effectively with no equipment um or with equipment and um and that will yield performance benefits now if you don't need to change direction as quickly as possible then that's where the flywheel might be more beneficial. So a powerlifter or a rugby player in a scrum or, or I'm sure there's any number of sports or, or positions and people that you could name. And if you just want to get stronger, good old-fashioned strength training is a good way. I think flywheel training could be really cool. I just don't know probably enough about it to say, I think it's really good for this, this and this. I don't know enough about it. And um, I don't think I... I don't think I would change my mind on that, but that's not to say I would change my mind. So is it useful? Definitely. Is it, is it required? Definitely not. And is it as good as some other things? 
definitely not i don't think mm, no definitely not it's not fast eccentrics do that stuff rather than your flight wheel stuff and i think you'll see much bigger much bigger benefits and that's where you very rarely see anyone doing they don't do fast eccentrics they do heavy slow eccentrics no fast eccentrics that's where the money is i think so uh go back to listen to daniel's daniel's um chat on that and that's where you'll start to see like that's that's effectively that's what we're saying instead of the flywheel i think so uh yeah so hope that answers your question roberto um okay next one let me see we go over here i'm trying to understand variability and pain do you typically see more or less variability in someone in in someone in chronic pain um you typically see you'll typically see less variability. So when someone is in pain, if you just want to take like back pain, the system is trying to predict as much as possible. It's a top down type of thing. Um, I actually think I did a video on this, this for the member site. I did, I did, I did talking about like um, freezing degrees of freedom, co-contractions, all of that stuff. It was with regards to change in direction, change of direction work. Um, but I did another video, I think, on top down versus bottom up. Yeah, I definitely did. So there's two videos on the member site that kind of answer this in a, in a roundabout way, talking about different topics, but definitely touch on this. So someone's in like chronic pain. Now, everyone is different, right? Everyone is different, but you'll typically see less variability. So if you want to think about this, we'll take like three examples of three different people. So my brother's son, who is now starting to walk or is now walking for the first time, he has huge amounts of variability. So every single movement he he makes looks so different. So everything is completely different in his movement. All right. So there's so much variability. It's not a top-down approach. He's not thinking about his movement. Everything is being controlled pretty much by reflexes and the reflexes are, are saving him all the time. So like every step is effectively a fall and the reflexes are stopping him from falling over. Right. So it's just like light bulbs coming on left and left, left and right. And that's trying to manage the perturbations and the variability that's in his movement because it hasn't if, if you listen to john coyley's uh episode it hasn't smoothed it out his movement hasn't smoothed it out he doesn't have enough just just reps in the in the in the tank for the brain to be able to make and the body to be able to make really accurate predictions about what's going to happen on every single step i make because he hasn't taken enough steps yet but every single day i see him his movement is starting to smooth out a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more and there's less vari- variability in let's say something like his walking there's much less variability coming in every single day every definitely every single week um but for now like it's such a reflexive movement them reflexes are reflexes are effectively trying to stop him from falling on his face uh all of the time and and yeah so so that that that's someone with high levels of of variability and like very much bottom up type of thing he's not thinking about every step he takes then you take someone who then you take like high level athlete right so there can't be with an elite athlete like you will see they can't there can't be too much variability right so they have to they, how do I how do I put this? Because this is a this is the tricky one, right? And this is what we were trying to answer with with John Coyley as well. So actually, Bosch talks about this quite well, I think. Um, so let's say in a deceleration pattern, right? 
for 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 a soccer player or something like that. So they're going to desell and they need to desell quite fast and quite hard. What you'll typically see or what you would like to see is is hip and knee flexion happening together. So it spreads the load across, but uh, kind of all these structures, right? So hip and knee flexion, they couple together and that helps spread the load, right? So if 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 you see knee flexion and hip extension in a deceleration pattern, then this is where you see a lot of ACLs going, right? So Bosch has all this work. And like, so one of his, one of his big things is hip and knee flexion in deceleration patterns. Okay. And you see this again and again and again with like, it really doesn't matter what the sport is. A lot of elite athletes will do this. And then you'll see a lot of ACLs going for, for example, this is just one thing. You see a lot of ACL ruptures when they're when when the athlete for whatever reason in the sport has to couple knee flexion but they don't go into hip flexion they stay in hip extension and that kind of just pushes you'll see this anterior translation of the of the tibia and and that is a recipe for disaster it doesn't mean it's going to go but like that is where a lot of acls are going right so that is kind of a, you don't want to see too much variability there that is like an inbuilt pattern where the anatomy and the 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 coordination of the tissues and the system learns to manage this and keep the keep the keep the tissues safe effectively right it's learning to disperse the force in the best way most efficient way possible to keep the keep the system safe so that's uh that's an example of there's not much variability there now obviously there's levels of how much hip and knee flexion they go into but you will see hopefully with most elite or sub elite or even okay athletes going into hip and knee flexion when they decelerate okay so that's an example of okay they don't have that much variability hopefully in the in those patterns but there is variability within that pattern in terms of how much hip and knee flexion they'll go into where the trunk might be all of this stuff but you'll still see hip and knee flexion most of the time all right so this is um that's something then bosch is like attractors the other attractors and stuff that he talks about that's that's an elite athlete's way of having uh something that Bosch talks about is like having a simple body so a simple body if you look at like change of direction agility all this stuff there's just too much going on to have to have firstly to have a top-down approach where the brain is managing all of these things there's too many degrees of freedom so it's quite a simple body um and the attractors and the anatomy is what's managing that so it's trying to limit the variability even though like okay there's so many degrees of freedom here these these this intermuscular coordination is is kind of managing the co-contractions the pre-tensioning all of this stuff the reflexive uh the reflexes the preflexes are obviously built in all of this stuff is managing how we how we move our mass in uh in an environment where there's a lot of time pressure and there is a lot of variability in the environment and in the task as well. Okay. So like there is limited variability in these things. And Bosch talks about how like, okay, here's the attractors that you pretty much want to see, but the attractors are obviously fighting against each other and stuff like that as well. Okay. So there's a lot of variability there. Uh, but then the, the system is trying to make it as simple a body as possible and limit the variability. Now, outside of the attractors, there can be a lot of variability. And again, the attractors are fighting against each other, um, depending, depending on the task and the time pressure and all of that stuff and the situation, right? So like, 
it's a, it's a very complex question. I don't feel like I'm actually answering it very, very well, but an athlete has access to a ton of variability usually, but doesn't mean they're using a ton of variability all of the time. So like if they need to, a Gaelic football, a Gaelic footballer needs to catch a ball and turn and evade three players and like just get into a funny position to kick the ball or catch the ball or something like that. They can exhibit a ton of variability in how they, how they do these tasks. It could be, it, it looks different every single time, right? It looks different every single time, but the, the, the not micro, but the smaller parts of the body that make up them macro movements are like there will be attractors evident in those things which are limiting the variability and keeping the body quite simple at the same time so that's uh hopefully that explains like the other kind of not the other end of the spectrum but you have like my brother's son and then you have my brother playing football right so there's two two ends of the spectrum and um and one is one is like there's a lot of variability and it's just the system is trying to learn how to manage that. The other is the system has learned how to manage your vari- variability. They have access to this, but there is there is these um, there is these attractors and there is these patterns that make the body much more simple. And the anatomy is making the body much more simple to manage that variability all of the time. Okay, now some athletes lose a lot of variability. That's a different that's a different question. Like they start to lose a lot of the variability, and um, yeah, everything kind of that's just it that's another that's another question altogether but um the, be- the best athletes like they have enough how much is enough i don't know but they then have have these attractors built in to manage that variability as well to manage basically to make it a simple body i like that phrase simple body and to manage these degrees of freedom because there's just too much going on then like someone in pain then if you take someone with chronic back pain you're not going to see variability like they they walk in and effectively, it's like they're walking. If you if you walk there, if you ever walked outside in Ireland or Boston in the winter or something like that, and there's ice on the floor, you're walking, and the next thing you start to see ice, everything in your body starts to squeeze. There's co-contractions everywhere, and you walk over that ice like it, you're you you might widen your base of support. You're much more slow and careful and methodical, and that's a much more top-down approach then. Now it's both, right? It's both the, the anatomy is managing that. Like the anatomy is okay, there's just co-contractions everywhere, just kind of squeezing everywhere. There's there's much less probably knee extension, things like that. You just see this kind of rigid knee, rigid elbow all of the time. So there's much, there's much less uh degrees of freedom there is the word or is the phrase. There's much less degrees of freedom when you're walking over that. And if you look at someone with chronic back pain walking into your clinic, a lot of the time it's almost like they're walking on ice. They don't want to. It's definitely a top a very much top-down heavy where they are using their brain to manage the movement. And um, if you ask them to pick up a pen, like they'll stop, they'll think about it, they might brace. They'll bend down only like they, they might hinge down. They might not round their back, all of that stuff. So you will see. And and then with regards to the variability, it's not like, okay, you just say that's one movement, but then you ask them to do all of these different movements, uh, a toe touch, a squat, uh, a rotation, a lateral flexion, uh, whatever other movements you want, you'll actually see the spine do the same thing all of the time where they just keep the spine like completely still and try and try and like tear their shoulders or really move their shoulders to rotate around in their neck um, and all of this stuff. So same in the lateral flexion, you just see the spine staying still a lot of the time. 
know, not all of the time, don't, don't get me wrong, but with a lot of these like chronic back pain, they just learn to just brace around their spine and, and a lot of that variability is gone. So reintroducing that obviously is, is so important for those type of, type of people and uh, education and stuff like that is so important. And then just flu- fluid movement. This is why I don't like just talking about like, okay, just make them stronger. So just get them to deadlift and squat and, uh, and all that stuff that's a great option. Like definitely do get that. But then I love the, like, I love the medicine ball throws for, for those type of people. Uh, once they're ready for it, obviously, but like standing half kneeling, tall kneeling, um, staggered stance, all that stuff, medicine ball throws. And like the ones in core basics, like just all of that stuff. I use them all the time with my back pain people just throwing that ball nice and relaxed against the wall. There's a few things. One, you don't need to really cue them apart from like just maybe relax a little bit we're not trying to go maximal here just relax and throw so it gets it gets everything moving it gets them you can coordinate the breath if you want where they exhale and they throw or whatever um you can manage like the the foot pressures you can you can get them on a single leg so like maybe the maybe the maybe distally they're creating more co-contractions around the knee joint and stuff like that they're on top of the midfoot but this up approximately then you're starting to see the spine and the ribs and the pelvis move so you're trying to change that strategy and stuff like that um so yeah so like the fluidity of movement for those type of people getting that back is so important and just strength training isn't or just strength training where it's like, how much can you lift isn't necessarily the only way you could go about that. I think like the fluidity and going for walks and stuff and getting them to look, getting them to look out into space, look forward, be aware of your peripheral vision. That's actually get their arms to swing. They're stop, they stop looking down. Their pump handle opens up, their chest opens up. Um, and they start to just appreciate the world around them a lot more. That changes anything that can just change how they move and it gives them back a slightly different pattern, slightly different way of sensing things and, and feeling things and stuff like that. That's a, that's a really big deal. So that's, um, a simple way to, to do, to do it. Walks, medicine ball throws, um, and then just like getting them to round their back, picking different things up, all this stuff. So just kind of scrambling the signal, scrambling the, the, the way that they've taught themselves to brace, that's a really big deal. And I've probably gone off on one now. Uh, so I will stop there. But that's uh, kind of three examples of three different people. And uh, hopefully I didn't butcher that too much. So there's two answers. Um, uh, I think Liam asked this one, bodybuilding style training affecting GAA, uh, gaining tissue negatively affects performance. So I'm going to take that as a question rather than a statement, Liam. So bodybuilding style training affecting GAA. Uh, GAA is Gaelic, Gaelic football and hurling for anyone. Our two main Irish sports, uh, better sports than anyone else's sports. Um, gaining tissue negatively affects performance. So, right. It, it, there's no right or wrong answer here. Like you will see now that a lot of the top players across Ireland are um are after leaning down a lot in both Gaelic football and hurling so like if you looked at a lot of the Dublin footballers uh, maybe the most successful maybe the best team ever over the last five to ten years a lot of them are a lot leaner now than they were um and they actually went in their most successful period a lot of them were very very lean and that's just so that they can cover ground so the game hurling and football is it basically gone into there's not as much contact as there there once was for a while it was like a rugby game there's really not as much contact as there as there much much as there once was so it's about like covering ground moving quickly um trying to exploit space trying to open space trying to close space that's what the game has gone into and then executing on that 
So now, obviously, don't get me wrong. If you're weak, you will get absolutely mauled and uh, you won't be playing in the first place. But um, but yeah, that's a, a lot of the best players are much leaner now. And bodybuilding training can get in the way of that. I, I, definitely, I can I, I, I can see people and I've worked with people in like some of the top teams in Ireland, in both hurling and football. And I can see some players that definitely could do with losing a few kilos of muscle, of 100% of muscle that they could lose. I think it's really affecting their performance at the moment. And I think they're like picking up niggles and stuff like that because they're heavier than they need to be. So it can, can get in the way. Um, but, but like in the first few years of someone's development, maybe not. So like after you've put on a certain amount of muscle, so you've put on a certain amount of muscle using bodybuilding training, that's a great way of going about things. And just after a certain stage, like, okay, you've just done too much now. You need to, you need to kind of pair it back a little bit or maybe don't go into that stage in the first place. So we do all know that the athletes on our team that came back after, after an off season or did three or six months, not three, but six months of like heavy bodybuilding type of work. And they just ballooned. Now I could do bodybuilding work for the next two years. I wouldn't balloon. Some lads just look at a weight and they put on a ton of muscle. So like, it, it does depend on the type of person. Some lads, it makes their game better. Some lads, it makes their game, or guys and girls, it makes their game worse. Um, in season, though, I think bodybuilding style training can be really, really nice because if you're already fatigued, let's say you're training two, three, four days a week, two, three days a week, let's say on the pitch and a game on the weekend, uh, like you, you are fatigued and then bodybuilding training can be quite good because you can get some like, you can get some direct arm training, you can get some back training, you can get some chest, you can get some calf, you can get some hamstring, you can get some quad, and you don't need to maybe go hammering yourself in squats that might be like, okay, my back just really stiffens up when I do these squats or do these deadlifts or things like that. So in season, I actually see I actually see a bigger issue with the powerlifting type of training that a lot of athletes do. And this is still taught in the in the in the inter-county scene, like the, a lot of SNC coaches are still teaching powerlifting training in season to athletes where they're going heavy on their squats, they're going heavy on their deadlifts. And I'm not talking about with, with like primers, okay, just potentiation type of work um, where I just do a heavy, a heavy, a heavy double or something and I go out into the pitch. I'm talking about like, okay, we, we squat heavy, heavy every single week type of thing or relatively heavy every single week or we deadlift. And I think this is actually causing more issues than the bodybuilding stuff so i would much rather and actually a lot of the athletes i work with when they have when we're trying to clean up things in season i get them on doing their bodybuilding type of work and then we have like our our uh our full range of motion lifts but i don't get them to lift as heavy when they're doing the full range of motion lifts so they're they're keeping their strength and like maybe getting a little bit of a hypertrophy or tendon health or whatever with their bodybuilding type of exercises and then I'm cleaning up their hips with their larger range of motion, like squats and stuff like that. But it's more with an expansive point of view where like, okay, I'm making sure I'm breathing through the range and not, I'm not bracing as hard as I can. Now, this, that's just the kind of population that I work with a lot of the time. So I do see more negative, more negative transfer with the powerlifting type of training and even the Olympic lifting stuff. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, we should hopefully be able to keep in strength throughout the season, maintain it at least, or maybe, maybe increase it throughout the season using our, our, our like heavy squats and our heavy deadlifts. And we should 
if if you like and and the players are good at it, like Olympic lifts and stuff like that, I have no problem with that. But I do see maybe that there's more negative negative effects with the powerlifting side of things because I see a lot of tight backs, I see a lot of hamstring tears, I see a lot of like groin issues and stuff like that, and groin issues, hamstring tears. Uh, what else? Like kind of just hip hip issues, knee issues. I see. I see the I see people being driven into a lot of extension in season when they're already extended like they're already I mean I mean systematic systematic extension throughout their body in their spine they're being the big anterior anterior orientation they're being pushed forward because their sport is kind of doing that to them a little bit and then they go into the gym and they do that even more and I do see like these tight backs and uh these kind of lifts preceding then okay now i have a little hamstrings niggle or a little calf niggle or a quad or a groin or something like that so i see the i, I see not not all the time now but i see a lot of tight backs when i hear like okay my back is really tight for the last few weeks because of the lifts we're doing uh i see like I, I that's a kind of a not a red flag but close to a red flag for me that okay something there's a good chance something's going to go wrong here over the next few weeks because your body just is telling you i need to back off on this so bodybuilding i actually really really like it but there's a way of doing it without like completely blowing up altogether and um powerlifting i think is more is more of an issue that style of training is is more of an issue in season um maybe not as much in the off season so yeah so gaining tissue negatively impacts performance of course it can at, at a certain point this is not something anyone talks about but we can all look on the television hopefully and see players that just put on too much muscle and they know they know their their movement is impaired as a result and i don't even mean like mobility just their ability to um maybe even just last game they just have more mass to carry around so uh so yeah okay that i hope that answers that question and then i'm going to do one more uh how much pain should you be in when doing rehab work and what should you feel the next day so i can't really answer this question because how much pain should you be in ideally no pain but you can't go around saying no pain either like you shouldn't be in pain ever because that's creating a bad relationship with pain where pain is this big like this big thing that we're putting on a pedestal and oh if i feel pain at all okay here's a big issue and big red flag and blah 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 blah. so we don't want to go into that and also it depends on the type of thing so like if if it's a tendinopathy and it's a one or two or three out of ten pain when i'm training that might not be a bad thing at all so you're much better off judging that pain on how it feels the next morning if it was a three out of ten while i train but it's a one out of ten the next day like that's probably a good thing i'd probably keep going at that whereas if we say you shouldn't feel pain at all then like if you're someone in season with a tendinopathy patellar tendinopathy uh hamstring tendinopathy and achilles tendinopathy and you say okay how much pain should you be in okay you shouldn't be in any pain when you train in the gym then like when are you going to train because all in season you're going to be you're going to have some symptoms almost all of the time so when are you actually going to train the answer is you're not going to get a chance to you're going to feel some kind of level of discomfort or pain even if it's one out of ten all of the time so how much pain should you feel depends on the issue the one place where i don't like people to have much if or any pain is the shoulder for some reason now this is just my bias but like these narky shoulders that are going on for six months or a year or two years where like, okay, every time I open the fridge, every time I take a cup out of the press, every time I do anything, 
the I just I just get this sharp kind of pain or this dull pain or whatever type of pain. That's something that I think and actually no not not even that but like even i go into the gym and i just do these variations and I, the next day my shoulder is always achy and sore for the full day after it or two days after it that's something i try and limit with the shoulder more than anything else because i just i don't i don't know why but i just see a lot of shoulder issues being much better off and cleaning up much quicker if someone has had that pain for a long time i'm like okay for two weeks we're three weeks we're going to try to if we put if we do get pain it's fine but we're going to try to avoid in our exercises now not opening the fridge but in our exercises i'm going to try and avoid pushing into or you're going to try and avoid pushing into any of those ranges so we're just going to be safe for two or three weeks and stay like okay, if it's in this range, you think you're going to feel pain, I want you to stay 10% clear of that. So just train through the range that you feel comfortable at. And suddenly over the few weeks, you start to see that, okay, that that range expands and the pain is just getting pushed further and further and further away. We're getting stronger and our our range is is getting, is getting, is increasing. Our range that we're pain-free range is, is increasing rather than getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, which does happen with a lot of shoulder issues. So that's the one place that I really, I really try and limit pain. If, if I won't start there, but if someone has had issues for a while and it just seems like no matter what they do, they, they just keep aggravating it and aggravating and aggravating it. I feel like the brain just keeps closing in on them a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And eat, like this is presuming there's no damage there in the first place, but. So that's that's the one place I like to uh, I like to make sure that we're not pu- uh, pushing in too much. And I do feel like three weeks without pain, and then we start to to tippy toe towards it a little bit more. But suddenly the pain isn't there. It's another. It gives us another five percent range. Another five percent. Another five percent. That's a. I think that's a, a really good way of approaching some of these chronic like niggly shoulder type of things that never seem to go away. And you can apply that obviously to any other part of the body, but for the most part, don't put it on a pedestal. If like, if, if in six weeks time, let's say it's a knee joint or something like that. If in six weeks time, our pain is the exact same as it was today, but we've got six weeks of training in and the pain is no worse. Then that's a big, massive win, a huge win. And I'll make sure people understand that that's a big win. You're now way stronger. You're you're after you're after getting the joint moving, all of these things, and like the pain is no worse. Big big win. So if it means training through a one or two out of ten pain, but the pain isn't going to get isn't getting any worse day to day wise, then I think that's a really good thing, a really really good win. Uh, so I hope that uh, should is a should is a hard question. Everyone, it depends on so much depends on every single individual person um okay what else uh, how do you address clients history with trauma in rehab uh i think sam asked that question uh sam i'm gonna not answer that one because i don't know what type of trauma you mean uh physical trauma emotional trauma whatever so i need clarity on that one before i answer it. what takeaways should you take um i think you should take away that fast eccentric system is is like one of the most underutilized things that you could use in the rehab process or performance training fast eccentrics um really really important i think you should take away that the variability side of things that like understanding that elite athletes they have like the simple body is the phrase if you if you take that from from bosch their body is doing everything it can to like create this simple body or at least around 
um not around but yeah so so simple body and they have variability but they they try and they're they have attractors as well that they go to all all the time to, to simplify things and uh i think you should think about the like how you view and speak maybe your own way uh what mentors and influence people have influenced you but like how you actually view that and, and how you speak and if you're just mimicking the things that they're saying or you're actually critically thinking uh bodybuilding versus powerlifting um maybe bodybuilding training in season is better maybe we're going back to to a thought process that for a long time we moved away from saying bodybuilding training was bad maybe not so much maybe it allows people to put stress through certain muscles without doing funny things at their spine and compressing the hell out of them everywhere at the same time and uh yeah i think that's it okay this is going to be i think my last podcast before i get married and i'm just going to read my little ad role which is make sure you join dgr interactive i don't have this written down by the way uh, i'm just looking on my phone to see what I, what content we put up so jake is going to put up his uh he's going to do his video there he is going to or i'm going to put up a video this week which talks about the forefoot i'm just seeing what we emailed out so i'm going to talk about the forefoot so like breaking down some forefoot mechanics and then you might have seen the post that i put up on instagram where i had a guy jumping onto a wedge on and off a wedge i'm going to break down what's happening there at the foot and uh why you might use a wedge in that position or a different position when you're doing a pogo hop uh so really really cool things I, I think to see and this is like a thought process that you can take with you anywhere basically so yeah so that's a that's a thing and uh what else yeah we had like a load of members join us recently so we had like 50 members join us over the last few days and uh we're, we just broke 500 members for the first time so like if you want to be if you want my basically my support for the full year if you want my team support like kira alice chris all these people if you want to be in our members only facebook group which is a new group we created just recently and um you want to be in there we're posting stuff in there every day different different members and people are posting stuff in there every day and then we obviously have the platform where where we have all our educational videos no matter what you want to learn 10 between 5 10 15 minutes you can go in click a video you learn about you can learn about hopping you can learn about mid stance max propulsion you can learn about achilles issues looking at a round heel you can learn about plantar fasciitis you can learn about uh big toe dorsiflexion bunion videos all this stuff as much practical info as i can you can take a pronation class you can take a squat class you can take a hinge class with chris and tear your glute apart open up your internal rotation all this stuff uh literally the education movement education of your dreams is my is my new tagline so um so yeah that's the end of the podcast and i thank you guys for joining me very much and hope i wasn't too waffly and i will talk to you guys soon